Welcome to another episode of the Weekly Podcast. We are enjoying outside life today. I want to thank everybody for listening. Uh, same old shit, sorry. Follow us on Instagram, The Weekly Podcast. Send us an email at theweeklypodcast at gmail.com. If you're interested in advertising your business um, or promoting yourself, uh, hit us up. Right now we're doing, it's right now roughly running about $8 for a 30-second ad per episode for on a 30-day rotation. Just let us know. Uh, trying to sell some T-shirts, um, or if you want to promote and help support the podcast, you can do that through our Cash App link on Twitter or Instagram. But, you know, you know podcasts... I always fight with myself and what what makes a good podcast. Uh, you know, you, it's like you want to interject is maybe something that's entertaining, like humor or whatever. But then sometimes I just want to tell tell a story. You know, and last week um, I done an episode on DNA. You know, just how DNA has transformed uh, crime and solving crime in a good or, or Sometimes it's a bad way because, you know, DNA can be everything or it can be absolutely nothing. You know, DNA is left behind everywhere you go. Um, you know, the way that the processes that's used to obtain the sample is one thing. The context of which, you know, when it was left, uh, where it was left, and what exactly it was that was left behind. I feel like that the overexposure of DNA, <clears throat> excuse me, has kind of made it easier to get convictions, even if the DNA makes no sense. Because you see a lot of juries, they want to see DNA. Oh, DNA's present, DNA's present. And, they, and it's taken out of context. And not every situation. Um, you know, I shake your hand. My DNA from is on your hand. So, say later on you're shot that day. They collect my DNA off your hand. Now they run it. Let's say my DNA's in the system. Are they coming for me as a possible suspect? Now, what if a few things have went against me that day? Maybe like I don't even have an alibi or some other circumstances that might make someone look guilty. Would I be arrested? Would I be convicted? Maybe context is king. You know, the other side of DNA, having something to to match it to is another thing altogether. And we're talking about the collection side of crime and DNA, so context is king. Um, an example, say a man has sex with a co-worker, and then later she's raped by someone else. Two samples, or maybe rapists used a condom, and co-worker's DNA is the only one DNA has almost become the end-all and be-all of a case. Jurors hear DNA, and it's a slam dunk. I feel like that's a that's dangerous. I feel like we must do better. Now, blood on a murder victim, sperm where your sperm has no business being, that's one thing. And sperm has become the gift that keeps on giving from the crimes of the 1970s and 80s. Because at the time, no one worried about leaving it everywhere. A Gold State Killer comes to mind thinking about that. You know, he was meticulous in planning, watching, stalking, laying several escape routes, and, and he knew exactly what he needed to do, 
and not to do to go undetected. But he's letting that micro penis spread that semen everywhere. And even after he stopped and DNA was used to connect all his crimes from the 70s and 80s in the early 2000s, he was still in the clear as long as his DNA is never in any database for them to match it to. And it worked out fine for him for many years. He stayed out of trouble. Most are almost caught down the road for, for something else and DNA is put in the system. But not the Golden State Killer. He was perfect in every form and fashion of escape and plan except for the sperm. So the DNA is only as good as its con context it's collected in. And even then, it's only good if you have a sample to match it to. So what screwed Golden State Killer in the, is the in the is the craze of the DNA and ancestral uh, databases and internet. Everyone is testing and finding out their history, and they're all uploading their DNA profiles to GEDmatch, so other relatives can match up to you and find out who they're kin to. You know, it solves it solves cases. It definitely solves cold cases, and many of the cold cases that have been solved through DNA have been through familial DNA matches. They'll find your long-lost cousin, and then they'll run down who it could be. An old-fashioned detective work is on, and they get your sample, and bam, it's a match. It's all about the victim in these cases. And, of course, some states have, have talked that the familial DNA match is a, is, a, is a breach of someone's privacy. I don't know. But let me ask you this. If you can collect everyone's DNA at birth and enter it, and they could collect exi existing when men and women have, have, you know, been born, new people coming along, and they put everybody's DNA in a big database, and it would possibly solve a lot more crimes. But where do we draw the line? They're taking DNA now in some states just by being arrested for a crime, even if you're found not guilty and you're innocent. Remember, it's innocent until proven guilty. I'm not real wild about how our current system is manipulated and corrupted by all this power and absolute power given to law enforcement, prosecutors, DA, and judges. Our system over-incarcerates and never rehabilitates. Too much power is given to few, letting people run wild in the streets with no consequences and almost a pat on the back. Just be fair and use a common-sense approach. We have to really start treating people with a little more respect, give people a fighting chance at changing their lives, a hand up and even a hand out. The heavy boot of our judicial system will stay on your neck if you ever get swept up in it, I promise. So DNA is one of the greatest discoveries in modern time. It has changed the landscape of crimes and law enforcement. It's a tool and a damn powerful one. So we must be responsible stewards and not abuse our power by using DNA. Familiar DNA matching is the next big deal in law enforcement. It's not a new science, it's just using what we know about DNA and build a family tree and by process of elimination, find a possible match. It's a lot of work, research, archives, family tree, census, old newspaper, etc. I mean, tedious but rewarding because finding the Golden State Killer was one of the biggest cold cases solved I'll ever see. Until, here recently, you know, 
And we'll talk about that later, about the Long Island serial killer. I feel that at one point, so much emphasis was put on DNA evidence, it caused jurors to convict just because DNA was found and matched. It overshadowed every other piece of evidence. It's not until people started to realize how easy and innocently DNA can be left in some cases, they started to look at it in the context it needs to be. Sometimes the DNA collected was so minute it was hard to say how it got there. Winning cannot be the goal. Truth must be the only thing being sought after. A man from your part of town goes missing. You don't know it. But he's laying in a small ditch on the side of the road. You drive to work. One day you throw your gum out the window and it lands on his body and you don't know it. They find the body, test the gum, find your DNA. They get your sample because you live in the area. It's a match. Now that gum fell out of your mouth when you dumped. Now that gum, according to them, fell out of your mouth when you were dumping his body. Oh boy. Oh boy. Unless you were out of town for sure, you might not be believed, no matter your story or alibi. Sounds crazy? Not really. My point is you toss your DNA everywhere, all the time, all the time, everywhere. You leave your DNA behind. It's a nightmare for sure. Of course, there's normally three way, three main ways crimes are solved. The main one is someone talks and tells the police. Someone solves it for them. Cell phone and GPS and DNA. Eyewitness testimony is garbage. Garbage. But anyway, I just wanted to reiterate that on a little bit of DNA and, and, and the processes of our judicial system. You know, the Golden State Warrior, Golden State Warrior, moves in my mind. Golden State Killer was an amazing, amazing thing to watch him finally bring that monster down. The Long Island serial killer, they just arrested him too. And I think it's amazing, amazing, amazing thing to see. And it excites the mm -hmm. shit. I mean, I love it. I feel like John Benet Ramsey will be the next one. They will solve that case. We're going to talk about another case when I come back. This is the weekly podcast. You know, the Golden State Killer, Cold Case DNA 101, you know, he's only named that many years after his crime spree because in the beginning he was, you know, in early 2000s, DNA was used to connect. He was the Visalia Ransacker. He was the East Area Rapist, the original Night Stalker. It was all one and the same person. Eurons is what they called him for East Area Rapist and original Night Stalker. He also was the Visalia Ransacker. Uh, became the Golden State Killer, and that name was given to him by Michelle McNamara when she wrote her book, I'll Be Gone in the Dark. She named him the Golden State Killer. He was just known as Eurons. And of course, DNA connected all these cases together. So that was the first break in that case. You know, kudos to the crime scene team for the collection and collecting something and keeping it at the time made no sense or wasn't even worth keeping. And you see a progression in his crimes because early on he was ransacking houses, maybe still in underwear. And then he's the original Night Stalker. He's breaking into homes with people there. He's the East Area Rapist. He rapes over 50 women. Then he starts killing. So he killed nine people and, and raped over 50. Um, you know, you see a progression in his crimes. It, the ransacking just wasn't enough. He couldn't get off on it anymore. Um, the event that started his need to commit these crimes was his breakup from Bonnie, his fiancee, the love of his life. I also think his micro penis was a part of his troubled mindset. 
He starts by just watching through windows, then breaking in and steals panties, then he rapes, then raping while husbands are there, then he murders, uh, then he just stops. He lives a normal life, somewhat normal life. He's hateful, mean type person. He gets married, separated. Uh, I'm not sure how it would stop. You know, maybe the trinkets and treasures he kept that was so wonderful and meant so much to him. The memories mixed with the fear of being caught. And he had something to live for because he had children by this time. You know, DNA over the years has connected the dots to catch this killer. You know, by first connected all the crimes, giving law enforcement a profile that can be tested against suspects. And then familial DNA put them on the track to the family line that the Golden State Killer was a part of. Then regular police work, it kicks in. Which person was in the area, fits the description, right age, etc. Once they put his familial DNA on their radar, he was cornered. Then they test his DNA against the killer sample. And it's over for Golden State Killer. Golden State is done. Um, and then talking about the Long Island serial killer, you know, they had his DNA. They had hairs finding something, which they said that the DNA wasn't as advanced to be able to test the hairs and get a mitochondrial match until most recently. So they had the hairs. Now they have the DNA technology to get DNA from these hairs, and they've done that. So now they need a sample to collect it to. So now you go into basic police work. And that cell phone is the new DNA of the 2020s. That cell phone is attached to us everywhere we go. He was using burner phones. Each victim had a different burner phone. So he was trying to be careful, trying to cover his tracks. But he made phone calls. He made phone calls from the area, from his home. He made phone calls from his work. So all these phone calls from these different cell phones were coming from two very specific areas. Now, when they do phone dumps on these towers... They start just knocking people down because he's using his regular phone, calling his wife, ordering food, whatever it may be, in the same area. So you got these two small areas that all three or four of these burner phones are used, mixed in with Rex Huerman's phone. So he's on the list. Might be a long list, but he's on the list. So now let's look at witness statement. Bear, a friend of the last victim remembers an ogreish tall type man with glasses and a first generation Chevy Avalanche. So now they find someone that lives and works in these two areas that drives a green Chevy Avalanche. Boom, Rex Shearman. Well, let's see what he looks like. Oh, big, tall, ogreish man with glasses. Well, let's follow him. He looks like, get a sample DNA from crust of pizza that he threw away. It's a match. The Long Island serial killer that's responsible for the Gilgo 4 is captured. They had most of this evidence all along. I think they said the one thing was the technology on the DNA that they were just now here most recently able to do. But I feel like this case could have been solved 
quicker if uh, others had maybe put in the legwork it needed to go through thousands of people that were dumped off these cell phone towers. And going back through the case file and reading this description concerning the man that was at Amber Costello's house the night before, and they shook him down and kind of robbed him of some money. But these two cases just blow my mind. Of course, we're going to see the Golden State's already accepted his plea deal. I wish he would talk and just tell his story so we can know just what really went on. But he probably won't. But the Long Island serial killer and Rex Hurman is just now in the very beginning stages of going to trial. So he went to trial, and it's probably years away from going to trial. They've raided his home. They've collected things. They've uh, storage building. He's got land in South Carolina. He's got a condo in Las Vegas. Um, they're trying to connect him maybe to other killings because there was 10 bodies total found in Long Island. There's four prostitutes in Atlantic City that he looks good for. And there, there might be victims in South Carolina and Las Vegas that they're looking into. I believe his strongest connection to any other case would be the Atlantic City case. Uh, we covered it in a, a previous podcast. Go back and listen. There's four sex workers found in Atlantic City, all within, you know, a short distance of one another in this canal behind the hotel. Um, of course, all along, you know, like in our previous Long Island Circular, you know, they, they knew Burke. They, everybody else used to say Burke had something to do with it. Burke, the Krupp Police Department. The only thing Burke, I guess, is guilty of is he definitely slow-rode the investigation. I feel like because he was involved with some some prostitutes and some nefarious activities that had the FBI come in, I believe they would have been able to uncover, you know, just putting a closer eye on him, on him and what he does at work and, and putting him under a microscope wouldn't have been good. James Burke had, had skeletons in the closet. But I like going back and listening to different theories on who killed, and I'm talking about the Gilgo Four, the four that we know for sure are connected because of the similarities in the, the camouflage burlap they were found wrapped in. You know, everybody talked about burlap, burlap. The poor guy, the one guy that killed himself that owned the nursery. Somebody owns a nursery because everybody's thinking brown burlap, but... Nobody knew it was camouflage burlap that was used to make duck blinds. I believe Rex Hurman's guilty, and I believe he's guilty of killing others, and it will come out. But I find it very satisfying that they caught him, because that case always kind of sat with me. You know, and I've listened to other podcasts. I'm not going to name any names, because they have a million more listeners than I do. But they were talking about, and of course, it's Valley Girl, Oh my God, it's like I'm so disgusted. He was listening, possibly listening to my podcast and was getting off on listening to it. Oh, I'm disgusted. Shut up. I just, I just shut up. I just don't even, yeah, I hope he listened to my podcast and I hope, hope it put the fear of God in him that people were, were talking about it and they were not going to shut up about it and his fucking ass was going to go to prison. I'm, I'm not going to play this self-righteous politically correct oh fucking oh i'm so disgusted that he listened to my podcast oh shit no i hope he listened because i think right now his wife it just came out that she was 
the kids are crying themselves to sleep. But I, I don't mean this in a negative way because I'm a big, fat, old-ass man. His family's a strange-looking bunch, aren't they? Just all of them together. All of them are a strange-looking bunch. I, I, I don't know. You know, his wife's DNA was found on three of the victims, the hair, but she was out of town for those three. And I just wonder if that first one, if he killed her while she was in town and something went wrong, and he said then that I'll never, ever, ever kill while she's in town again because he almost, he came close to getting caught. She came close to catching him. Maybe she did catch him on that first one. And she's like, you ever do this again while I'm in town? I'll fucking kill you. But they don't think she's involved. And she's probably not. I'm not trying to slander anybody. I'm just mere speculation. She's probably going through hell right now. And the poor kids. I don't even talk to my dad much. If it come out, he was a serial killer. I, I wouldn't be. I mean, you you would hate it. You'd be. I guess you would be embarrassed. You know. I don't know. I don't really give a shit about stuff. I mean, I, I don't really care what other people think. I really don't. I don't. I don't. And I hope his family can figure out a way to be strong and hold their head up and say, "Yeah, yeah, my my dad and my husband's a serial killer. He's a piece of shit. Fuck him," and go on about their life, go on about their day. I think they'll come out, though. I don't think he's... I don't know if he's... I mean, because those other victims that were found were 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 beheaded. Their hands were chopped off. Uh, you know, Jessica Taylor, her torso was found early on in 96 near Fire Island. And then her hands and head were found when they were, you know, looking for Shannon Gilbert. And praise Shannon Gilbert. God rest her soul. You know, she's not considered a part of this and I never did think that the same killer killed her that killed the other victims I think Dr. Peter Hackett is a weirdo and maybe had something to do with killing Shannon but I don't think she was a victim of Rex Huberman but she is the one that got the ball rolling and you know although Shannon Gilbert lost her life she also saved probably many women their lives by causing this case to grow legs to grow arms then by god it's got a whole body and they they've, they've got a man in custody and it's only because of shannon gilbert that they do and that that story is tragic you, you know i've got another podcast on shannon gilbert listen to that but she her going missing in oak beach uh they start looking for her and instead of finding her they find all these other victims and they finally eventually do find her remains they think she succumb to the elements out there in the marsh and swampland um but without that missing persons case or without that you don't have i don't think you have the, the long island serial killer of the gilgo four in custody i don't think you've even found those bodies yet without the shannon gilbert and her her story is tragic her family because you know her mom was later on her, her little sister kills her mother just crazy. That's just crazy. Crazy, crazy, crazy. But it, we'll see what happens with Rex Hearman. We'll see. I do think he's responsible for the Atlantic City murders. I do think he's responsible for the Gilgo Four. And I think he's got one or two more uh, that he is going to be responsible for in other places. Uh, South Carolina. Um, possibly Vegas. But... Uh, he was uh, he was getting ready to kill again, folks. Don't don't fool yourselves. 
he had had a cool down period. He was getting comfortable again, and he was stalking prostitutes again. And I believe he was amping up and stalking the family of the victims of of, the, of sisters and siblings and mothers of of the girls he'd already killed. So one of two things was going to happen. He was going to kill another prostitute, or he was going to kill a sibling to one of the victims. But he was ramping up, and he was getting ready for something, because the police did not want to arrest him at that moment. They wanted more evidence, but they took him down for public safety. So don't be fooled. He was getting ready to kill again. But these are two cases that DNA have played, phone, the, the three the three main points that solve cases, people talk, uh, and then cell phone, and then DNA. But I'm anxious to see how these play out. Uh, we'll be right back. We're going to do one more segment, talk about some local crimes and uh, some missing people. This is the weekly podcast. Be right back. Welcome back to the episode the weekly podcast. Uh, I want to touch on two local cases, the Summer Wells case, and we've done many, many podcasts about that. Uh, Don Wells, the father, and Candace Wells, the mother, have left town. I think Candace is in uh, Arkansas, and uh, Don has moved back to Utah. Uh, but I want to just touch base on, she's been missing over two years now. June was two years. Uh, so June 2021, Candace Wells was out running errands, went swimming, stopped by the store, uh, doctor's appointment. This is her, her mother, Candace Wells, Candace's mother and her daughter, Summer, the two boys, and a friend of the family, a young man. Uh, everyday things. But um, this evening, six-year-old Summer Wells, a five-year-old at the time, goes missing. The story that the mom, Candace Wells, tells is she walks across the yard to her mother's camper, which is 15 feet from the house. Um, this house is on a dead-end road on 100 yards up a steep, rocky driveway surrounded by thick woods, and the driveway is steep and rutted out. Uh, two younger boys are inside the house playing. Mom says Summer goes inside. Mom's come, mom walks back to the camper. She comes back to the house, only gone for three to five minutes. The boys say Summer's downstairs. It's a ladder you crawl down underneath the cabinet. Strange. The house is a little messy. It's a, it's an odd house. Um, uh, and Summer's gone with no sign of her. Um, you know, there's stories of, of Don, the dad, get drinking, getting loud, physical. Dad was going to work at the time of the disappearance. Um, and then... The story is she was just gone. So she calls the police. They're out searching. Uh, there's a black Ford Ranger scene in the area. Uh, there's a maroon Toyota truck scene in the area. And the neighbors and everybody's out searching. They're searching, searching, searching. But here's the thing you gotta know this house sits 100 yards up in the middle of the woods with one small little narrow rutted out gravel driveway that's super steep going to it off of a dead end road that's off of a, a country road. There's no way a stranger picked her up and she was abducted. A, it's too secluded. B, the time frame that the mother lays out, if she went out that basement door, the camper is 20 foot away. And she was only gone to the camper and out of Summer's 
presence for three to five minutes, she said. So within, let's just say three to ten minutes, Summer goes inside the house, 15 feet from the camper where mom's at, goes downstairs, walks out the downstairs door that's about 20 feet from the camper where her mom's at, uh, up on top of a secluded, wooded piece of property, and just disappears. All with less, all in less than 10 minutes. And people are out looking, searching, and they search for weeks and weeks. They bring out the helicopters, the plane, they bring everything, infrared, TBI, FBI, everybody, and nothing's found. Nothing's still found, and the parents are now gone. They're split. They're gone. So what happened? No one knows. I will say this. I don't want to say anybody's guilty before, you know, having evidence or not knowing the whole situation. There's a million and one chance that somebody decided, the stranger decided to, to stop, park, walk up toward their house and hope that Summer comes out the bottom door. Um, a family friend would be more likely, but still yet uh, be hard to <laughs> A, get up that driveway with anything uh, without somebody hearing you. You'd have to go right by that camper. <laughs> That's what I'm, I don't... And ain't nobody sitting in the woods on a trail. Uh, it just, it, the story is strange to me. Now, if she would have said Summer went inside and she was in there for an hour, then maybe she's had time to wander off far enough away uh, to fall down the driveway, get picked up by something. I, I don't know. It's just the time frame doesn't, doesn't work out. Something's had to happen, uh, and they fabricated this story, but... I don't know what the little kids have said. We're not really privy to all the information that law enforcement has. Maybe they know something that the story's bogus, but they don't have enough evidence. I don't know. But here's what I do know. The story that was told is a little odd. The timing's off, and a little girl's still missing. So look up that story if you don't know anything about it. Summer Wells. Um, and then another one I want to mention is Jonathan Lee Ellis. Um let me find my notes here. He went missing. Uh, let's see here. I've opened all my notes. Notes, notes, notes. He was last seen March 22nd, 2019. Jonathan Lee Ellis. And I've got his missing poster on my Instagram. Now... Only thing I've been able to do is go through his. I went through his Facebook profile and just looked at all the people, the interactions, and everything that he'd had. Um, you know, he'd had some trouble with the law, some trouble with drug addiction. Um, you know, could he have run away and then foul play ensued? Possibly. He was last seen, let's see here. I've been doing this case for a long time. My notes have faded. Um, okay. He goes, missing poster says last seen March 22nd, 2019. Jonathan Lee Ellis. Find his date. I won't say he was 35 when he went missing. 35 years old, six foot one, 240 pounds, has a few tattoos. Uh, went missing. Last seen March 22nd, 2019. Uh, some form of contact was made early March 
of 2019. He spoke on the phone. I think his mom spoke on the phone March 8th. Uh, now, his mom had lunch with him November 26, 2018. So we'll call that three months before. Um, October 31st, 2018, he was dropped off at rehab. So he, they drop him off at rehab October 31st, 2018. Um, his mom maybe goes down to have lunch with him. He's now, you know, it's been a month since he was dropped off. Maybe he's now allowed to have visits. So she goes down to have lunch with him, 2000, November 22nd, 2018. Um, and then several months go by. Uh, some form of contact, either email, text, voice, I don't know. But some form of contact was early March, around March the 8th. And then I don't know who's seen him. March 22nd, 2019, I've not been able to obtain that information. Uh, he's got two kids. Um, throughout 2018, early 2018, September, uh, October, um, even early as June of 2018, he has a couple different girlfriends. I'm not going to say any names. Um, like I said, he's got... His mother worried to death. Um, dad. Um, cousins. Brothers. Two brothers. He's got two kids. Um, so, looks like two, through, two out, through 2018, he's having some issues. Different girlfriends. Not uh, Probably kind of falling back off. Um, he'd been in a little bit of trouble in the past, but he decided to get everything straightened out. Good, he's a good person. Um, you know, drugs sometimes just take over our lives and, and we don't, we're not ourselves. So he's going to get help October 31st, 2018. Everything seems to be going good for the next month or so. Uh, mom has lunch and then he goes missing March 22nd, 2019. And no one has heard anything from him since he went missing in Jonesboro Johnson City Tennessee March 22nd 2019 35 year old Jonathan Lee Ellis six foot one 240 pounds look up that case put some eyes on that case if you know anything about that case shoot me a message or an email I'd like to talk to you maybe we'll do an episode I'd like to talk to people on this case I've tried in the past to get to get people to, to come on and it's and it's just always fell through. Uh but mom if you're listening, uh reach out. Let's 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 see if we can put some more eyes and ears on this case uh and get you some answers that you deserve. Same thing with Summer Wells. Uh, I think that uh hopefully hopefully they can resolve that, that case and uh it's a it's a happy ending and jonathan's case as well um so anyway this is that's the episode of the weekly podcast i want to talk about something personal before i let you go if you don't mind damn it i had it all wrote down too oh all right a little bit about me a little about me i'm 46 uh, way more than you six foot tall married four kids ages 14 to 23 uh, girls are ages uh, 18 and 12. Oh, I'm sorry. 
shit. The girls are 14 and 23. The boys are 18 and 26. My wife is an amazing person, amazing woman. She's in healthcare and a specialty department that she absolutely loves is in the top of her field. Uh, she has the respect of her colleagues or peers uh, through mutual respect given in her abilities and her craft. That's why they, that's why she has the respect she does. Uh, she has earned that respect and honor and it can't be taken away because you have a, a proven, you have a proven track record over time of just being a good, honest person and top of your field with just amazing abilities. Um, you know, if you do it right, they will search you out for you to come fix their problems or for you to, 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 you know, if you, if, uh, you need something and you need something that they're in the field, you're going to reach out to them. Uh, she has the confidence of her client or patients because of her ability to almost instantly become relatable and equal to the person in front of her. When you bring a certain calm and a peace because of, uh, you know, you're breaking down barriers and breaking down the scare barriers, you're the, you know, you're the, you shine by being the best at your craft. You know, no one wants to feel degraded or less than, you know, they want to be uplifted. They don't want to be uptight. They don't want to be uncomfortable until they leave. You know, you ever believe something, but you don't actually practice it enough. I believe that positive thinking can change your whole situation. And I'm still negative sometimes. Yeah. A little respect, kindness, empathy, like-mindedness will take you far. I'm very proud of her. Very proud of her. Um, you know, people are different. They have different tastes and styles. Adapt and knowledge. Adapt and acknowledge. Relate and confirm. Kindness is not weakness. Always be strong. So I'm very proud of you. Uh, Stephanie, I think you do an amazing job. You're an amazing person. You're an amazing wife, amazing mother, and you are top-notch at what you do. You're good at what you do. So I wanted to say that. So if you want to reach out to us, you want to, if you got a story to tell, reach out. Come on the podcast with us. We'll let you, we'll let you do some talking. We'll co-host one. Anyway, love you. Thank you. This is the weekly podcast.